0: with SBS Radio
1: SBS a world of difference You are with NITV Radio on mobile, online and on radio
2: We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater.
3: Hello, I'm Bertrand Welcome to TV Radio, and I'm very happy to be your host this Wednesday, the 3rd of August. Now, coming up in your program today, we explore the extraordinary life of uh, John Maynard, who grew up the son of a famous jockey, went on to become a truck driver, a barman, and a builder's laborer, but then would end up becoming an acclaimed academic and historian. Also in the program, we learn about uh, the Chinese pre-colonial connections with uh, your new people, And we also explore how GAMA, the premier indigenous cultural event, can actually help reset relationships between Australia and China. And with monkeypox now considered a virus of national significance in Australia, we explore calls on those at high risk of the disease to protect themselves. All this and many more coming to you after the news. Australia Day
1: 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy...
4: The
5: native title legislation must be amended.
0: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came.
4: I am sorry.
3: In this bulletin, Prime Minister Antony Albanese reiterates commitment to voice to Parliament amid diverging views expressed among Indigenous Australians. The federal government announces a review of the Australian Defence Force, and Nancy Pelosi becomes the highest ranking American official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. <laughs> Minister Anthony Albanese says he acknowledges there are diverging views among Indigenous Australians on the voice to Parliament and the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The Labor Government is committed to implementing the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full with a treaty, the second aspect of the process. The Prime Minister says this national discussion may not be easy, but it is sensible.
5: The Uluru Statement from the Heart didn't appear in a vacuum. It occurred after years of the most extensive consultation with First Nations people around the country. But most importantly, I know it has overwhelmingly the support of Indigenous Australians. Do I expect uh, every Australian on the roll to vote yes? No, I don't. And that's important that people are able to express their views. But overwhelmingly, this is a sensible proposition...
3: Advocates for the First Nations community have expressed outrage over the planned closure of the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence in Sydney. Local residents are pushing for an inquiry into how the Centre at Red Fund suffered a $2 million annual loss as it prepares to shut in a week. The, no- the National Centre for Indigenous Excellence first opened in 2006 to support the local Aboriginal community and the Centre staff only learned of the proposed shutdown. On Monday, the federal government has announced a major strategic review of the Australian Defence Force to ensure it's well-positioned to meet future security challenges. The review will be the first of its kind since 2012 and and will be held and will be led by retired Air Chief Marshal Sir Angus Houston and former Labour Defence Minister Stephen Smith. The two experts will undertake the most comprehensive reassessment of the military in 35 years. Defence Minister Richard Mars says their recommendations on the ADF's structure and preparedness will be delivered in March next
5: year. It will look at questions of force structure. It will look at questions of capability. It will ask and answer foundational questions about, given our strategic circumstances, what is it that we want our Defence Force to do on behalf of our nation in this moment? This will be the most significant review that we have seen of our Defence Force in decades.
3: Stuart Erz has has resigned from the New South Wales Ministry and as the state's Deputy Liberal Leader. A draft review into the John Pariralo New York City job job scandal found he may have breached the Ministerial Code of Conduct. The recruitment process for the New York-based trade role is the subject of a New South Wales parliamentary inquiry. The State's Premier, Dominic Perrottet, says his resignation follows a briefing he received from the Department of Premier and Cabinet on Tuesday.
5: The, the issues in the review go directly to the engagement of Minister Ayres with the Department Secretary in respect of the recruitment process. So that raises questions in relation um, to the Ministerial Code of Conduct. Um, as a result, um, Minister Ayres has resigned from his positions and, and DPC, the Department of Premier and Cabinet, um will conduct an investigation
3: in relation to those. Relations. Mr Ayers denies any wrongdoing. A proposal to restore territory rights is one step closer after a bill passed Federal Parliament's lower house. Labour MPs Luke Gosling and Alicia Payne introduced the bill which aims to allow the Northern Territory and the ACT governments to legislate on voluntary assisted dying.
1: It is well past time uh, that Territorians, whether they be in the Northern Territory or the ACT, were treated as second-class citizens, and that will mean for Territorians uh, that we will uh, regain the ability to make laws on issues that affect us as Territorians.
3: Prime Minister Antony Albanese and opposition leader Peter Dutton allowed MPs a conscience vote on the matter and it passed with 99 votes for and 37 against. New South Wales Police are appealing for the public to help solve the case of of, of assassination of a Turkish diplomat and his bodyguard more than four decades ago. As a part of a reinvestigation into the 1980 case, the Counterterrorism and Special Tactics Command has released an audio recording of a claim of responsibility in the hope that someone may recognize the female's voice. In the recording, a female voice claims responsibility for the assassinations on behalf of the justice commandos of the Armenian Genocide.
0: The attacks are in the retaliation for the injustice done to the Armenians by Turkey in nineteen fifteen. We are the authors of the above mentioned right. We have no connection at all with the so called Armenian secret army. And Turkish institutions are our targets, the Armenian genocide.
3: The Australian Electoral Commission says its partnering with online platforms during the 2022 federal election campaign resulted in less false information being circulated Commissioner Tom Rogers says the decision to link with Facebook, Twitter, Google and Microsoft helped prevent the spread of, of harmful content online The Commission identified 31 pieces of misinformation on Twitter alone and referred several posts for removal Foreign Minister Penny Wong has called for calm and a de-escalation of tensions between Beijing and Washington after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Pelosi became the highest-ranking American official in 25 years to visit the country. China has condemned the visit by Ms. Pelosi, saying it's a threat to peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. White House National Security spokesman John Kirby says the Biden administration wants to avoid conflict.
2: Now, there's no reason for Beijing to turn this visit, uh, uh, which is consistent with longstanding U.S. policy, into some sort of crisis, or use it as a pretext to increase aggressiveness uh, and, and military activity in or around the Taiwan Strait, now or beyond her travel. We will not engage in saber-rattling. We will continue to operate in the seas and the skies of the Western Pacific, as we have done for decades. We will continue to support Taiwan...
3: A representative of the Russian delegation has warned Western countries not to test Russia's resolve. Speaking at the Conference for the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons at the United Nations, Alexander Trofimov says if Western countries try to test Russia, then it would not back down.
6: But if Western countries try to test our resolve, Russia will not back down. This is not the language of threat. This is simply a statement of what is possible, such as the logic of deterrence against our country. The grounds for this decision were the confrontational actions and provocative statements by representatives of Western nuclear powers regarding the possibility of NATO interference in military actions in Ukraine against Russia. Thank you.
3: A new data released by the Australian Red Cross shows more than 20,000 Australians have signed up to become blood and plasma donors since the lifting of the UK mad cow blood donor ban. So far, 20,711 people are booked in for their first blood donation since Monday of last week. The rule change means that anyone who lived or travelled in the UK for six months or before, between 1980 and 1996, can now donate blood and plasma in Australia. And now to sport, Australia has secured more than 100 medals at the Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Action 5 action after Day 5 events saw Australia claim 11 gold medals, 12 silver and 12 bronze, bringing Australia's total hold to 106 medals on the tally. One of the highlights was Australian weightlifter Aileen Aileen Chikamatana, who became the first woman to win Commonwealth Games gold medals for two different countries. Now having a look at the weather around the country, Perth, showers and windy, 17, Adelaide, showers 19 degrees, Melbourne, showers and wind easing, 19, Hobart, a shower two sixteen. 16, Canberra, showers increasing, 17, Wollongong, cloud and clearing, 23 degrees, Sydney, much the same, 23, Newcastle, similar conditions, 23 degrees, Brisbane, mostly sunny, 24, Cairns, partly cloudy day, 28, and Darwin, a mostly sunny day and a top of 31 degrees. That is NITV Radio News.
5: Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio.
3: Now, coming up next, we explore the life and story of uh, John, John, Professor John Maynard, also known as the Accidental Historian. Also in the program, well, we explore this question, can GAMA, Australia's premier indigenous cultural event, help reset relationships between Australia and China? And with monkeypox now considered a virus of national significance in Australia, we look at uh, colds. On those at high risk of the disease to protect themselves.
5: NITV Radio, on radio, online, and mobile.
1: I started school in 1959 and I left the day I turned 15 in 1969. Don't have any fond memories of school. It was all non Indigenous history. Captain Cook discovered Australia and. Um, there was nothing there to encourage you. There was nothing there to support you. I mean, I spent most of my time just staring out the window, thinking life must be better on the outside. The big saving grace for me was I loved to read. I consumed an incredible amount of books, particularly history. I wanted to learn what the hell had happened, and also from the Aboriginal perspective of where were we in the history of this this country. I mean clearly overlooked forgotten missed and dare i say it erased so my journey was you know somewhat very much unexpected and i spent the next 25 years in a whole variety of jobs none even remotely related to academia
2: Mm. well let's just go back a little bit your your father mervyn maynard was a famous jockey which meant you grew up around horses and race tracks did you think you were destined to work in the horse racing industry when you were younger
1: well i mean my father was an incredible inspiration to me he was a very proud man very humble man a great jockey So I grew up in the stables and grew up at um, Broadmeadow Racecourse. And when I was eight, we were living in Singapore and Malaysia. My father had a contract and was riding over there for four and a half years. So I saw a lot of the world. And by the time I was 12 months old, I remember that my mother said to me that I'd been in every town in New South Wales, at least those with a racetrack on it. And there's not many that don't have a racetrack on it. So I guess um, there was certainly a strong connection with horse racing. I think the biggest thing was when I was about 12 and I was having breakfast and my father come in from up the stables up the back and sat down with his cup of tea and looked at me across the table. He said, son, if you've got any thoughts of being a jockey, reconsider, (laughs) because I was clearly not built to be a jockey. So uh, he was advising me to go in a different direction.
2: Now you've said that from a young age You always had a passion for reading and and learning about the past Mm -hmm. Yet you didn't enjoy school And and Mm -hmm. finished without any educational qualifications Mm -hmm. What was it about school that you
1: didn't enjoy? It just wasn't for me And as I said there was no encouragement There was no support for me There was no value of an Aboriginal background Or culture or history In the stuff that was being taught there And I guess it was just that I switched off You know we wanted something to inspire us And, I mean, that wasn't there, (laughs) so...
2: And while you didn't see Aboriginal people reflected in in what you had been learning, Mm -hmm. um, what did your family culture and Aboriginality mean to you then?
1: That was where you got your pride. That's where you got your identity. That's where your wholeness was. And that was a reflection on what was missing as far as the outside world was concerned. So you know how close, you know, Aboriginal families are. And, I mean, so... There was that. I mean that was the, the the backbone of who you were. And certainly with my family, with my grandfather being such a, a prominent um, early Aboriginal leader, I mean, That was the inspiration for me. And where was he in the history of this country? So they were the drivers in that regard. Mm
2: -hmm. Now, in the decades following school, you worked as a truck driver, a barman and a, a builder's labourer. But it was a small bit of research on a family history project that changed your life. Can you tell me what happened?
1: I was just shy of my 40th birthday. I was out of work at the time. And um, my father, knowing my passion for writing and reading, I think was just to sort of give me a kick up the bum and give me something to do as well as deliver something for family. He said, son, I want you to put the old man's story together like my grandfather, Fred Maynard's story. Family history project, you know what I mean? It was no greater vision that I set off with than a nice exercise book, you know, writing something up, doing some interviews with family and, and friends. Photographs, newspaper cuttings, and some of the letters that my grandfather had written. There was probably no greater vision than that, and I knew the libraries and the 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 archives and things like that. But I ventured over to the University of Newcastle to Wallatuka, the Aboriginal Education Centre there, which was established in 1983. I might add, Um, and I spoke to Tracy Bunder, a Murray woman who was the director of Wallatuka in those days, and. The quickest way to get through that story is by the time I'd turned around, Tracy had kidnapped me and had me enrolled as a diploma student. And that had a massive impact on me because this was a journey that was totally different to what I'd experienced through school. We had Aboriginal lecturers fellow Aboriginal students, Aboriginal content. Um, I took to that like a duck to water.
2: And so at the age of 39 you enrolled in the Diploma in Aboriginal Studies at Newcastle Uni and uh, you know to finish your family history and at 40 you received the Diploma. Yeah. Um, what did it feel like to reach that milestone?
1: Uplifting. I was the first member of my family to, to, to get recognition in that regard with a university piece of paper and my... Um, parents are extremely proud of, you know, me and uh, my father, I mean, you know, he it really chuffed him to think that uh, I'd achieved this.
2: So you wrote your master's thesis about your grandfather's involvement in organised Aboriginal political activism yeah. as part of the worldwide Garvey movement, yeah. and your work was, was said to be groundbreaking. Why was this discovery so significant?
1: You know, it wasn't that long before that the idea that of organised Aboriginal political activism was thought to have started in the 1960s and 70s. You know, there was a vibrant, grassroots, vocal Aboriginal movement of that particular time period but people began to look back further and of course we had the day of mourning and I mean again the story went back 12 years before that with the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association which formed here in Sydney in 1924 uh, and was led by my grandfather. No one realised then um, how big that movement was and how influential they really were. And of course, it was the international connections that they had. Probably the, the big influence at early stage was this group that formed the Coloured Progressive Association. It was an organisation in Sydney from 1903 through to 1919. And what really stood out in regards to that was a meeting with Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight boxing champion of the world. and. Johnson came to Australia in 1907, and he came back in 1908. But we've got a family photograph which pictures Johnson with a group of black men, which was the Coloured Progressive Association, and my grandfather is sitting in that image. And, um, you know, you you just think of the sort of person Jack Johnson was. He was not just one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. He was politically astute. He was highly outspoken a real intellectual and an inspiring individual on the rights of black people and oppressed people around the world. So certainly coming into contact someone like him for my grandfather would have been inspiring.
2: Let's talk about your uh, first book titled mm-hmm. Aboriginal Stars of the Turf. Yeah. Why do you think this book was so successful?
1: I started out doing family history on my grandfather, and the jockey book was, of course, my father. I mean, I grew up on Broadmeadow Racecourse, but it wasn't just my father. Stan Johnson, Gordon Taylor, Normie Rose, David Matthews, so these were all Aboriginal jockeys were at Newcastle, Broadmeadow. Where were they in the history books? Not just them, Aboriginal jockeys right across the country. Where were they in the history? That book, certainly for Aboriginal people, and I had people contacting me that, you know, that... They only had one copy, but we all read the book, (laughs) you know? And it was just that, that impact of that. That's what drives me. I'm not, I've never been here for academic recognition. I mean, I have gained recognition in that quarter, but for me, the most important thing is having our people read, having our people enjoy the written work, gain inspiration from the written work, particularly our young ones. And again, it's that missing history. The stuff that's not there, you know these stories are there. And for me, that's the driver that they've, you know, to deliver that.
2: You've also written extensively about the role of race in sport. What conclusions have you come to through your research?
1: There's been so many outstanding Aboriginal sportsmen and women who were denied the opportunity of achieving what they should have for their talent because of the colour bar. And that's the reality. I mean, we see today, with, particularly with Rugby League and AFL, which is celebrated, you know, as the Indigenous games by both those codes, but the reality is they had barriers to Aboriginal people playing those codes. You could count on two ends before the, you know, the late 60s how many Aboriginal players were playing those codes because of the barriers to stop Aboriginal, you know, representation with those games. It certainly changed across the last 40 years, and we've seen... The greatest players in the history of those codes have been Aboriginal players.
2: After seeing the cases of, um, you know, Adam Goods, what happened to him, yeah. do you think the, the situation is improving?
1: I think it's gained a lot of publicity and hopefully that will change. And the, certainly both of those codes are at last recognising the damage that's been done. I mean, what happened to Adam Goods was sickening. You know, it's the public attacks against Adam Goods as well. You know, but slowly, but t- time... The the, the the wheels are turning and I mean hopefully people reckon he was an outstanding player and I mean not just that a beautiful man you know in regards to that with an incredible you know outlook on life and you know should have been used to promote the game into the future but what happened to him was tragic
2: now it appears that your research and books are Um, are about uncovering the hidden stories of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their significant mark on this country. Why are these stories only now being uncovered?
1: It's happening now because there's a lot more Aboriginal people writing history. I would say today there's not an Aboriginal community in the country where our people aren't putting together family and community histories. We're trying to put together a fractured past and make it whole. I mean, as I said, just my story. I've connected with so many others for the amount of work that I've done, and we've got incredible heroes and heroines in our past. That's the important thing, and I, wherever I go and speak to people, get in and do your family history and put your stuff together because you've got people in your background who can inspire others. Their stories need to be told. Get out there and tell it. That's the, that's the real thing that needs to be done.
3: And that was uh, Professor John Maynard, also known as the Accidental Historian, talking to Living Black host Carla Grant. And this episode was over. Actually Living Black was aired on NITV on Monday night. And uh, I have to just uh, remind you that uh, Living Black airs on Monday nights on NITV at 8.30 p.m. If you want to catch this episode again or any other episode of Living Black, you can catch them on SBS On Demand. And that was calling every nation by yothu yindi yothu yindi acclaimed your new band. Well uh, known for actually being at the origin of Gama Festival. as well as premier indigenous cultural and political event that just wrapped up 2 days ago well gamma 2022 and itv and sbs provided a comprehensive coverage with wide reporting on country from uh, sbs's programs other than english including french arabic mandarin and cantonese and the uh, reporting right across the sbs uh, network and this coverage provided unprecedented opportunity to connect indigenous cultures with Australia's multicultural and multilingual communities I had to say this because it's thanks to this wide-ranging coverage that we got our next story. It's the story about the true origins of gamma, its connection to Chinese people, and whether gamma can actually help to reset Australia's relationships with China. Well, to find out, Lucy Chen of SBS Mandarin sat down with Peter Botsman, Professor of Australian Aboriginal Affairs at the University of Melbourne.
4: It's true that it did start from the Othinyi band, in that way. But the meaning of Gama goes back hundreds of years and it has to do with the chinese Macassan yongle relationship in Australia.
7: It sounds like really new to me. This Gama festival has connection with China. Can you explain the
4: story? Well, the Gama festival, the Gama ceremony was to promote prosperity in trade because the Yongle people would trading with China for we don't know how many hundred years we have documentary evidence of maybe two or three hundred but it could have gone back you know 600 years um, there were people living here almost permanently every season with the winds that would come the praus from Makassar would come gather and smoke tree pang on the beaches here so Gama was the Yung'u's clan leaders would have a ceremony for the Makassan uh, admirals who would bring their fleets to promote goodwill. And it was a ha- very harmonious and good relationship where tobacco, clothing, metal and money yeah. was exchanged in for the right to harvest the tree pang and take it back. So the Macassan traders would meet in Makassa, the Chinese tra- traders who would take that the dried sea cucumber, to Beijing, where it was a, deli- a very, very, very valuable commodity that was very much appreciated by everyone. So it was a very lucrative trade. for the in Ma-
3: which year?
4: Well, we know that it was happening when Matthew Flinders came to the so-called English Company Islands. He met Pabasso, who was the Macassan Admiral, who had a big trade, and they were going back home. And he met with them and sat down with them. So we know that before there was any white settlement in Australia, this trade had been going on. How many hundred years before Matthew Flinders met Pabasa uh, up on Cape Wilberforce was this trade going on? The theories are starting to emerge, the archaeology is starting to emerge, but we're finding ceramic pipes, we're finding adobe Houses. we're finding all these sorts of things that suggest that it was hundreds and hundreds of years of trade between China and the Yongle people.
7: And why did it stop?
4: Why did it stop is an amazing question because it stopped when Australia became federated because suddenly this was a country called Australia and the foreign countries were forbidden from trading Ironically, with the traditional owners of this land. So it became an Australian Commonwealth law. And everyone here was devastated because they wanted that trade to continue. So
7: according to the law, they can't
4: trade? They couldn't trade anymore, so the the Macassans couldn't come anymore. And even though, if you look at the Yongle people and the Macassan people, they're very similar because they would go and stay with each other. Some would go for the year... It would be a trading they would come with the trade winds and then go back with the trade winds, so people from the, this Arnhem land would go on the prows to Macassar and then come back the next year and There are many families who have relationships, so all that ended in federation, and so did the trade with China. but everyone thinks, oh bauxite, iron ore, this was the big trade with China no no, no, this was pang dried sea cucumbers, which is still very, very valuable as a commodity in China.
7: Yeah, Chinese people like sea cucumber. Yes. And um, also, I want to know, but there should be some traits, like there should be some um, children or family yes. at the time with the Chinese heritage. Do they still have some Chinese...
4: So the thing about the Chinese relationship was it was second-hand one. So it was a Makassar who would trade with china yeah. so the macassans would come on their prowls, they would gather the tree pang go back to macassar and then the chinese
7: yeah, I see. would okay. come. so
4: there probably is in broom and places like that there's a very very strong chinese heritage that goes back we know at least 150 years yeah. uh, and at one time it was the pearling capital of the world so yes, everyone yes. was there
3: yes.
4: but and See, this, this was the other place where Tripeng was gathered was the Kimberley areas around Broome. Yeah. So those same traders would come there as well to trade with China. Now, there probably was an intrepid Chinese trader that would come and say, where is this Tripeng being gathered? You know, But whether they stayed and had a relationship with people, after the Federation, when all of the Gama goodwill ended... Yeah then there were some very terrible incidents with um, fishing. Japanese, I'm not sure whether there were any Chinese fishing, but some of the big incidents of colonisation after Federation occurred when people weren't observing the Gama protocols and would just come and gather fish or anything without asking the traditional people. And so that created a huge conflict here. It was called the Black Wars, in fact, and it was because of this man here, Donald Thompson, coming up here and sort of trying to sift through what had happened that it it didn't result in the kind of problems that we've seen in South East Australia where Aboriginal people were very badly treated and, you know, and just brutalised. So this didn't happen here because of that. But he also understood all of this, Macassan. And everyone who's been here for any amount of time and has... Been adopted by Yongle clans, like I have been adopted by the Galpu clan. Um, we all know the Macassan Chinese relationship is yeah. so strong here.
7: But no, today is the last day of the Gama festival. So, when you think about this history, do you have any comments?
4: Well, I just think it's been tried a number of times for people to go to Be- the Yongle people to go to Beijing. And they have. And there's been some wonderful collaborations of art painters and all these things. But, you know, it's a profound time for Australia and Chinese relationships. You know, things are a little bit tight and problematic. But I know one thing the Prime Minister knows, because he's come here a few times, is our relationship with China through the Aboriginal community goes back four or 500 years. It's a strong relationship. And we need to be celebrating that as part of the foundations of our good relationship across the countries. And um, so that's why the Gama Festival is very profound for Australia-China relationships.
7: Thank you so much, Peter.
3: Thank you. And that was Lucy Chen of SBS Mandarin talking to Peter Botsman of the University of Melbourne.
7: NITV
5: Radio, Monday, Wednesday... Friday at one PM or anytime online.
3: And that story is uh, from the Gamma Festival, which just wrapped up uh, on uh, Monday. And the Gamma Festival that started at uh, the beginning of uh, end of July, beginning of August, marks actually the beginning of uh, cultural and festival events in. Uh, the Northern Territory, including the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair, the Darwin Art Festival, which we will be reporting uh, on NITV radio. Last night, one of the events uh, at uh, the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair, one of the key events, is the Country to Couture, an innovative runway show showcasing First Nations designs. Well, in the sidelines of this event, I caught up with a uh, Gomeroy designer, Colin Tide-Johnson, to explore the festival and her input with her designer label.
0: I use um, Gunroy artists to showcase um, artwork and uh, storytelling on biodegradable and sustainable fabrics. Um, yeah. My my vision is all about um, you know sending material back to Mother Earth rather than to landfill. Yeah, I've been just using cotton and silk at the moment, but a big interest of mine now is to be able to print on that sustainable fabric and it's just a part of the vision of Bullo Miri's vision too. You know, there's always something new coming up, so the next collection will be printed on something that's very sustainable. Yeah. And I'm still working on um, where I'll um, launch the, the next collection
3: collection? Yeah, we are used to your collection, Honey Ant collection, which you created and uh, you've shown and has gained a tremendous um, recognition and um, applause right across the world. One thing that uh, is particular with uh, your design, they're sustainable, it designed for the, for luxury fabrics. Using the
0: fabrics is. Yeah, it's pretty um, sort of um, financially difficult but, um, you know, I guess from my vision um, I just have to keep pushing through but this collection and it's called the Honey Bee and not the Honey Ant. The Honey Ant was the last collection so the Honey Bee has um, a significant story and, you know, um, I'm about um, the the environment as well. So the honeybee collection is about how um, it's in how it's important to our everyday life. How the bees are important to our food chain, and you know, there's um, a, a story there between myself and um, the artist Anne Johnson, who is my cousin, um, and the childhood um, uh, stories of collecting the honey and the um, extract, making it into, you know, using it for tune gum as we were kids, that's um, what our uncles and fathers did back when we were growing up, Um, so that connection with that honey bee has always been a part of um, our, our journey.
3: And that was uh, Colleen Ty Johnson. Uh, We caught up in the sidelines of uh, the Country Couture Runway which took place uh, last night in Darwin as part of the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair. NITV Radio will bring you more coverage of uh, the Aboriginal Art Fair as well as the Darwin Art Festival currently underway in our upcoming programs.
5: Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio.
3: Now to our next story, a story about uh, monkeypox. Well, monkeypox is now considered a virus of national significance in Australia, and those at high risk of the disease are now looking to protect themselves. LGBTQI plus health organizations have been calling on the government to secure stronger supplies of the new vaccine before the virus has a chance to take hold. Claire Slattery reports.
6: Australia's oldest LGBTQI plus health clinic, Thorn Harbour in Melbourne, has had a busy week. The service has been flooded with inquiries after monkeypox was declared a disease of national significance in Australia. Cases of the virus in the Northern Hemisphere are also increasing, prompting the World Health Organisation to declare monkeypox a global health emergency. Thorn Harbour's clinical services manager, Peter Locke, says gay and bisexual men who are considered high risk for the virus are keen to get vaccinated.
1: We've seen an escalation in inquiries, uh, especially in the last few days. And um, I think as the community is becoming more aware of the possibility of a vaccine becoming available. um, And I think that's also because the gay and MSM community is really kind of keen to protect their health and the people around them. Um, and they're quite motivated to get that happening as quickly as possible.
6: But for now, Peter Locke says, they'll have to wait.
1: We don't have stock at the moment, and we're not entirely sure when it'll uh, be arriving, but we are preparing ourselves. We're looking at the storage requirements and trying to come up with some plans on how to distribute um, to the people who are highest at risk as quickly as possible.
6: Specific vaccines for monkeypox haven't been widely used, but vaccines developed for smallpox are considered effective. Right now, there are two on the market. Australia does have existing supplies of one, an older vaccine called ACAM2000, but it's not recommended for immunocompromised people, including those with HIV. It also can only be administered by specialists and is associated with rare but serious side effects. The preferred option is the newer, third-generation vaccine called MBABN. Acting Chief Executive with the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations, Heath Painter, says anyone can take this vaccine and it has fewer side effects.
5: This third generation vaccine is very safe and very effective at stopping people from acquiring the virus. So different to the COVID vaccine, where the COVID vaccine stopped the severity of symptoms. So that's why it's really important that we have this third generation Vaccine.
6: But the supply of the MVABN vaccine simply isn't keeping up with demand around the world. It's left countries like Australia exposed and GPs like Dr. Beng U empty handed.
5: We're saying that, you know, we've heard about the vaccines, but it's actually not available to us. We're not sure how to source it. We've tried to ring the state health departments who are trying to find out how to source it as well. It's actually not actually available at clinics, but we can't get our hands on it. But there are a lot of people, a lot of people are actually wanting the vaccines, but we can't get of it.
6: In a statement, Federal Health Minister Mark Butler says Australia was actively pursuing supplies of the MVABN vaccine well before the WHO declaration was made, recognising there's limited supply and high demand. He says this is being done in collaboration with the states and territories, which are the distribution points for vaccinations. Victoria's Chief Health Officer is Brett Sutton.
5: We need to explore getting vaccines to protect those most at risk, but vaccine supply is a challenge internationally. There aren't enough vaccines for all of those at-risk individuals, Um, so we'll we'll need to do our best with the classic public health controls of isolation of cases and follow-up of their close contacts.
6: Alongside vaccination, public health experts say a comprehensive information campaign is needed to combat the spread of monkeypox, but Heath Painter says it needs to be community-led to avoid potential stigma or shame, similar to that which occurred in the early days of the HIV epidemic.
5: But We need to do it in a way that's sensitive and that's familiar, um, um, because That means that gay men will listen to the message. And we know from our experience with HIV that gay men are very vigilant with their health. They want to make positive choices about their own health and about the the decisions they can make to protect the health of their community. And they've done that for almost 40 years with HIV. But to do that, they need information. They need to be able to make an informed decision. And so you need to have that, that very carefully calculated and calibrated message led by, by, commun- by community leaders.
6: Infectious diseases physician Professor Paul Griffin says that with a targeted approach, Australia can avoid the worst
5: of monkeypox. I think we are likely to see more cases, but I think if we get the response right from here, the number will hopefully be fairly limited. I mean, this is an infection that's relatively hard to transmit. We know the risk groups in which we're seeing the bulk of transmission. So we should be able to have a really fundamental public health response that that reduces the the prospect for onward transmission. Claire
6: Slattery, SBS News.
3: And uh, that was uh, Sisters by uh, Lois Olney. And that's all we have for your program today. I'm Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for your company this Wednesday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.
2: Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from.